The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Were you popular in middle school and high school? I was not. I was a nerdy kid. I was not very attractive. And I always had these brilliant ideas for things that I thought were incredibly fascinating and other people just thought made me colossally weird. So you cannot imagine my joy at this time in life when I am surrounded by the cool kids. And that's exactly what is happening on today's Main Street Vegan program. Thank you so much for being a cool kid along with us. After the first break, we are going to be bringing on, oh my goodness, the coolest of the cool, Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Yes, yes, right here. You heard it here. Colleen Patrick Goudreau, the joyful vegan. And I am going to be accompanied through this entire program by my first guest, who's also going to co-host, and that is the incomparable and very, very cool J.L. Fields. J.L. Goes Vegan was how she first got famous. That was her really (laughs) super-duper blog. And then one day she was listening to a podcast, not this one. This one didn't even exist yet. She was listening to the Our Hen House podcast And I was a guest, and at the very end of that program, I said, oh, by the way, I'm starting this academy to train vegan coaches. JL was out running. She came in and sweat and all applied for the academy. And since then, and I'm not taking credit because she's just so remarkable, (laughs) but JL 
did the recipes with Jenny Messina RD for Vegan for Her. She wrote her first cookbook, Vegan Pressure Cooking. She has written her second cookbook, The Vegan Air Fryer. And she is co-authoring with me a book coming out in December, The Main Street Vegan Academy Cookbook. And guess what? That's just on the side. (laughs) J.L. Fields is something that so many of us aspire to be, and she has done it in five years. She has become a full-time vegan. Welcome, J.L. Fields. Thank you. Wow. Well, you should take a credit for a lot. I'll never forget that. And I love that you remember that story. That is exactly how it happened. I was out for a run, and I had um, just a couple months prior, Jenny had approached me to write vegan for her, and I was like, I don't want people to call me, you know, my, I didn't want my bio to be like popular blogger, JL Fields. I needed street cred. And then I heard you on our hen house and I was like, that's it. I'm going to be a vegan lifestyle coach. And I literally run in the house and applied and you accepted me immediately. So thank you. Well, it, it's amazing. And now, of course, you're on the faculty um, talking about the vegan business, of, of which you are totally an expert. And we've even had a little conversation today that maybe our next book together might be... Main Street Vegan Academy business book. I would love that. Wouldn't yes, that be fun? I would. Because, Victoria, because you are doing so much. You're like, you make vegans, but then you also help make those vegans. You give, you empower us to kind of go out and, and do more. And so your approach is, it's optimistic, it's empowering, and you're also very practical. And I'm oh so practical. And I think that we could really help people say, okay, it's not just like all like, wouldn't it be great if I was a professional vegan, but we're gonna be like, no, let's talk about it for real. Like how much, what does it cost? What's marketing mean? What kind of further education do you need? What does it really mean to teach a cooking class in a community? How much does it really cost you? And if there's anyone who can do it, it's us. It is indeed. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll just do that. I feel like anything we come up with together happens. That is true. It it seems, (laughs) it seems destined. Well, let's talk about your books and let's talk about the very latest one, the vegan air fryer. So for anybody who is not culinarily inclined, perhaps, and might not know what an air fryer is, what is it? Magic. (laughs) So, So truthfully, so this book comes out actually in two weeks. Two weeks from today. So uh, about a year ago, I'd been hearing about these air fryers and saw a lot of uh, pictures on some of the vegan Facebook groups where people were using them and talking about it, how it was amazing. And I remember one day there was a a group called um, Power to the Veg that was started by Jessica Shea, who's the brilliant mind behind the um, vegan street fair in L.A. and the new one coming up in New York. And I said, all right, is this thing really what it's all everyone's talking about? And she just simply said, yes, you have to get one. So I got one. And I had an air fryer for just a few weeks and I put a book proposal together because it, you know, I kind of joke around. It feels magical. You know, the easy way to describe this is it's a countertop device that, you know, just sits on your counter, doesn't take up a whole lot of space. It takes up about as much space as maybe a toaster oven might take or a pressure cooker, electric pressure cooker. And it uses, and the technology is what they call rapid hot air technology. So you put food into this basket that you insert into an air fryer And then with convection cooking and a heating element on top, rapid air rotates around the food and it makes it crispy with little to no oil. So you can imagine why some people are getting excited about it who are, um, you know, eating a plant-based diet and are trying to reduce oils. Um, Or for me, which the reason I was interested in it was because I live in a condo with 
a loft bedroom directly over my kitchen. And so if I were to ever dare fry food, I would smell it for days. And so I never fried food. And so it was a way for me to start doing some fun foods with just a spritz of oil. And suddenly I was eating like crispy cauliflower wings and um, you can make pizzas and you can make French fries and roasted Brussels sprouts. So it's just this really quick way to cook. It reduces cooking time in half and uh, you don't heat up your home. So it's magic. So I understand about potatoes and, and cauliflower. You threw me with pizza. I knew I was going to. So here's the cool thing about an air fryer. Um, it makes food crispy. So that's why they call it, you know, like a fryer. But it's not, you're not sitting it in any oil. You can spritz a little olive oil on it or canola oil or whatever your oil of choice or not. You can use veggie broth or aquafaba, which is the juice from a can of chickpeas. Um, to add some crispness, but it also can operate as an oven because the heating element, it goes anywhere from, let's say, like 200 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to 400. So say you have a favorite cookie recipe that you bake the cookies at 375 Fahrenheit for 22 minutes. In an air fryer, you could just do a couple of cookies, reduce the temperature by 30, about 30 degrees. So let's say bring it down to about 340 and then... um or 350 and bake it for half the time on that air fryer basket. So you could bake cookies. I make little banana loaves and tiny little, um, any, any dish or pan that you can put in your oven, it's safe to put in the air fryer. So I bought teeny tiny mini little bread loaves and I make a quarter of a recipe of banana nut bread and pour it in. And we have servings for two. Is it any um, quicker? Yes, it's quicker. It cooks in half the, bakes in half the time. Mm -hmm. And um, the temperature is about 30 degrees less. So a little bit like convection technology? Exactly. Except, it, and, and, and the difference is it's in a, a more confined space. So some people will say, well, I have a convection oven, so I could do that. It's really not the same. I mean, I've, I have a convection oven, and I've put potatoes in to be French fries, and mm -hmm. what I've had are baked potatoes that right. are in the shape of a French fry. Yeah. You put it in an air fryer, and with just a little spritz or two of an olive oil or maybe a little aquafaba, and it you crunch into a crispy fridge fry. Oh, amazing. It okay, is. tell us your favorite recipe in the vegan air fryer. Oh, you know, it's probably going to be the thing I've been doing the most. So I'm on a book tour, and I have learned that the easiest way to do demos on a book tour is to kind of do the same thing over and over again. And my favorite recipe, so vegan pressure cooking, I always did umami anasazi beans because I called them the vegan maker. They were my vegan version of ham and beans. And so, so far, my book tour is young, but so far... My favorite recipe is what are, I call kale and potato nuggets. So I take mashed potatoes that I just simply cook in vegetable broth and mash right in the pot and sauteed kale and garlic, and I combine them together and roll them into little balls and um, to form nuggets, and I put them in the air fryer for about 12 minutes, and you've got this almost like a kale chip on the outside with this kind of creamy mashed potato thing that you bite into. It's very fancy. It looks pretty with the color and golden. And it's the kind of thing that when people come over, you're like, would you like some potato nuggets? <laughs> wow. You know, JL, you have a, a very unique talent. You can convince somebody with a microscopic New York City <laughs> kitchen to consider new appliances. <laughs> and I was just looking at the, the frontispiece of, of the vegan air fryer and saw your dedication, which mm. is so you and so wonderful for the animals always. That's right. Woohoo. The one and only reason. So, um, pressure cooking. Yes. 
that's another quick way to do things. Yeah. Well, so you're noticing a theme here. Um, <laughs> you know, I always say to people that I, um, you know, I didn't cook vegan. I was, I didn't turn vegan until I was 45. And I started cooking at that point because my husband, Dave, had been doing most of the cooking up until that point. And I didn't want to spend my life in the kitchen. I'm busy. I got things to do. And so as much as I love to eat delicious vegan food and I enjoy the process of cooking, I don't want to feel like I'm attached to my kitchen and so early on in my vegan days, this was even when I just started blogging with just the intent of just being a, you know, blogging, I discovered that I could make brown rice in 20, you know, not in exactly in 22 minutes, but I mean, you quicker than 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and you can make beans, you soak them overnight. And instead of cooking them on your stove top for three hours, they're done in less than 30 minutes, sometimes less than 20 minutes. And so I was really drawn to it. And so actually a publisher, they approached me. It was considered author acquisition. They found my recipes and they wanted me to write a book for them, which is that's how vegan pressure cooking happened. And for me, like I said, I live in a small condo. I'm in Colorado Springs and we um, don't have air conditioning. There was a time in Colorado Springs. You didn't need air conditioning. Those times are no longer with us. (laughs) And um, so it gets really hot in my condo. And so I have two ways to make food really fast without overheating my kitchen and not making it all stinky and smelly. I have a small kitchen too. I have, you know, urban living. So, so people are afraid of pressure cookers because it's funny. We were talking today about how some people are afraid to come to New York city because it was so dangerous back in the 1970s. And it seems like people are afraid of pressure cookers because they were kind of creepy in the 1950s when most people weren't even alive. So can we stop being scared? I'd like people to stop being scared. Almost everyone has a story about a mother or grandmother who blew up split pea soup (laughs) on their ceiling. I swear to you, I have got, I have taught so many classes and everyone has that story. And there was a time, you know, the old style pressure cookers that were on the stovetop which by the way, they still make some that have what they call jiggly tops. And so you knew when it was, when it was on, that thing is jiggling on top. You can hear it. It's spluttering and you know, you can kind of see the steam. Um, those were kind of scary and yeah, you can't put that on your stove and then just walk away and forget about it. There's something's going to, you know, the pressure's literally going to build up and then something's going to happen. Today's pressure cookers, even the stovetop methods, the, the manufacturers are putting all kinds of safety features. They have lids where, you can't open a lid until the pressure's been released. So, you know, that accident of somebody who went to open up the pressure cooker lid, but the pressure hadn't come down, that can't happen now. And then the electric devices, which I really recommend for people who think they're um, forgetful, maybe they get a little distracted, you got kids running around. I got that. No, not the kids, but the rest. (laughs) You got the distracted. So you could, in today's electric pressure cookers, and and, and the multi-cookers are very popular. People now have the Instant Pot, um, which is this, Rice cooker, slow cooker, pressure cooker, yogurt maker, but Fagor also makes one. GoWise makes one. It's this device where you can put. Last night, um, I'm staying here in New York for a couple of weeks, and and I have a pressure cooker in the apartment I'm staying in, and I set some brown mushroom brown rice to cook up, and then started puttering around, taking the garbage out, doing all kinds of things. I didn't need to be in there. It stops when it's done. It stops and it moves over to warm. So those. There's so many safety features. I really think that people who are eating plant-based, who are vegan and eating lots of beans and grains, it's just such a great way to to get your food cooked quickly and you just don't have to worry about it. It sounds like a way to save money too because you wouldn't be buying so many beans in cans. Exactly. Organic cans of beans. 
they're not cheap. Like we always say, well, beans are so cheap. And it's like, wait a minute. I just spent a dollar eighty nine for this little bitty can. Exactly. And buy it in bulk. And then the other thing that I think is great, especially for people who are new to eating vegan or plant-based, is you might not have eaten a lot of legumes and beans. And so you might not know what you like. The great thing about going into a bulk section of the grocery store, and sometimes I know I don't, B-U-L-K, bulk, um, is um, you can go and just buy half a cup of a legume or a bean that you've never tried before. Cook it up in the pressure cooker, and then if you love it, go buy more and put it in a mason jar and store it. But either way, you're not wasting money. You're not spending money on a pound of beans that you turns out you don't like, but you're also not buying cans and cans of beans. It's a really great, uh, it's a great budget strategy. Well, and you just said that these multi-cookers are rice cookers, yogurt makers, slow cookers, yes. and pressure cookers. Yes. So that saves room too. Exactly. Well, I used to have a rice cooker on my countertop yeah. and I had um, a slow cooker over, you know, on the hutch. And, and as soon as I got a, the multi-cooker, I, all of those things are down in the basement. That's so interesting. <laughs> Gosh. I almost feel a uh, visit to the home goods store. I know. Well, I just checked out on. your, I, I think, I think you're going to have room in your kitchen. I think I can help you out. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and you do help people. So, so JL, for, for anybody who, who maybe does not yet know you and your work, you do a lot. You know, when I say you're a full-time vegan, and I don't mean just she's a full-time vegan, she's a full-time professional vegan. Um, so you do a lot. You teach cooking classes. You you run the Colorado Springs Vegan Cooking Academy. Yes. You do executive nutritional coaching. I mean, you have a lot of irons in the, oh God, I wanted to say pressure cooker. No, a lot of irons in the fire. So, so tell us a little bit about your work and also about where your energy comes from. And I'm not sure it's just the food. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, coffee. Um, no, so I do a lot of things. That's one of the things I learned when I went through the academy, um, through the, through the Main Street Vegan Academy was like that there are so many different ways that people can, uh, can spread the veganism, you know, spread the word around veganism and to help people along the way and to truly make a living from it. And I honestly believe that what we should all do is if, if that's the path that we want to go on is to really think about what we're good at. Sometimes I think people look at things and they're like, I want to do this or I want to do that because that seems to be where the money is. Money was not the motivator for me, but make no mistake. It's not because, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this as a philanthropist. This is how I make my living now. I have a mortgage to, to um, pay. It was to find out what am I good at and what is a way that I can spread the message and have a viable income. And so for me, I had a background in the nonprofit sector, 25, 30 years as a fundraiser, running um, nonprofits, teaching, you know, around strategy. And so I was able to kind of use some of those skills to think about what I could be good at. And I, I used to teach when I lived here in New York. I taught at Long Island University. And so teaching was always important to me. I thought that I might want a personal chef. I don't love it. I tried it. You don't know until you try. But what I found out was that I still am good at teaching, even though I'm teaching something different. And so for me, my goal has been to empower home cooks. And now over the last couple of years, I would never would have guessed. And apparently now I can also work with chefs. I'm on the faculty now at the University of New Mexico in the culinary program. And I teach the fundamentals of vegan cooking for future chefs. And so, um, that's my, that's kind of in my wheelhouse. I, I feel comfortable getting up in front of a group of people and doing that. And so for me, from a business model, what I needed to look at was what do I need to do from a viable, you know, to, for a viable income? 
Um, what am I good at? And I really have been focusing on the writing, which is specifically obviously around food writing, writing cookbooks. I write a dining, a vegan dining review for my local paper in Colorado Springs and then the teaching. And, um, and then of course the coaching that I do with businesses because I approach them with sort of a strategic, a proposal to say, I can add something to this and, and it's worked. So, you know, viable and various incomes are really important when you're working for yourself. Yeah. Oh, and, and you're, you're just, you're utterly brilliant at it. I can hardly wait to write a vegan business book. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And I can hardly <laughs> wait for this break to happen because <laughs> when, uh, when it's over, we'll be talking with another amazing full-time vegan, Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Stay with us. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. God is formless, yet takes many forms. What goes around comes around. Chant the name of the Lord and be free. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ever been confused by the variety and apparent contradiction within world religions? Join Reverend Paul John Roach every Tuesday for insight into those principles held in common by all the great religious traditions in world spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions. Using discussions, interviews, humor, insight, and practice, Practical advice, we will clarify the confusion and reveal simple yet profound truths. Call in with your questions and ideas and help break down the barriers that separate us from one another. That's World Spirituality with Paul John Roach, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. 
Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks to Unity Online Radio for um, being our host and allowing us to get this wonderful message out into the world. Last week, I recommended a book, and I evidently kind of slurred my words or something because somebody wrote to me that she hadn't understood the title. The title was and is The Dominion of Love, Animal Rights According to the Bible by Norm Phelps. So if you're someone who has any interest in the Bible or if you talk to anybody who has any interest in the Bible, I highly recommend The Dominion of Love. And you know what? That's really where I feel that I am sitting right now, just right (laughs) in the middle of a big old love fest. Colleen Patrick Goudreau's Compassionate Living Philosophy is propelling plant-based eating into the mainstream and forever changing how we think about, how we talk about, and how we treat other animals. She is the author of six books. She's an acclaimed speaker and the beloved host of the inspiring podcasts Food for Thought and Animology. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you for having me. So good to talk to you both. Well, it's wonderful to have you too. The last time I saw you, you were right here uh, teaching a class for Main Street Vegan Academy. So it's just I was. how everything goes around and comes around. Indeed. So, animology, what's that? So, animology is the name of my new podcast, although it's really part of a larger project. And it is all about the animal related words and expressions we use, and more importantly, how these words and expressions affect and reflect our relationship with other animals. So it's a real mirror that I hold up to all of us to reflect back these very familiar words and expressions that we don't necessarily know have roots uh, in animals. And then, of course, there are familiar expressions we use that do have roots in animals that we're aware of. And some of them are violent. Some of them are pretty harsh. But it's really not just about talking about all the violent ones and you know coming up with alternatives. It's really about saying animals are such a huge part of our consciousness and our history as human beings that it's reflected in our language when we don't even know we're using words that reflect that. So it's just a real way to say, if animals are so deeply connected to us, and I would argue they are, then what does that mean for our treatment of them? And if we're using language that expresses violence of them, then what does that really mean for for our relationship with them? So it's a really fun, and now, of course, one of those animals has actually just come into the room to talk to us. Charlie has just entered Oh, Charlie. <laughs> so that's what, Charlie. It's, that's what it's about. <laughs> Hi, Charlie. So, yeah. Colleen, what what does one do? Like, so I, you know, I had you on my show, too, on Easy Vegan, and we talked about this. And, and I am certainly becoming much more aware now when I when I use the word. Like, I put something on uh, Facebook last week, and I actually deleted it because I thought of you, and I thought if Colleen sees this. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, no, really? I, I'm going to tell you what it is because then yeah. I want you to help me understand like a, a good way to learn from it. Because I think I was like, I, I put something up and I said, and it was so on the nose. And as soon as I wrote that, I thought, I'll bet that has something to do with animals. And then mm-hmm. I looked it up and it was about racing. And so it was like horse racing because they win by the nose, right? 
Right. So I was like, okay, so that was had something to do with animals. I don't really understand it. I don't know what the alternative is, but I'm just going to delete my post because the vegans are going to be mad at me because someone's going to say I just I just condoned horse racing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I love what you're doing, and I'm wondering, like, what is that? Like, what are what are you hoping is um, when so when someone listens to the podcast and learns more about language, what is your hope that they take from that once they learn more about a particular phrase or word? Such a great question. And that's such a great example, because my hope is just that, is that we pay attention to what we're saying and to the words we're using. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to censor ourselves. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything we're saying that might have animals in their origin mean that we're condoning violence against them today. But it's part of a larger conversation. So if someone did write back to you and say, oh, that's a that's a horse racing expression, you're condoning horse racing, of course, you know, that could be part of a conversation that says, well, actually, I, A, I didn't know that, or B, I don't necessarily agree that I'm condoning horse racing because some of these words have become such a familiar part of our vernacular that we're not aware uh, of it. And they've lost their meaning. You know, words change, expressions change. They don't mean the same as what they did when we first used them. And yet some that might make us uncomfortable. We might want to say, let's let's do away with that because it's such an obvious, egregious expression of violence against animals. But it's not there's it's not black and white. And that's exactly what I want people to do is think about what they're saying. There are a lot of people who feel that we've gotten so politically correct in in our speech that it's really become a, a little bit onerous. And I remember feeling that when I was at a vegan event and said to my husband, I'm over here, honey. And this woman said, you shouldn't say, honey, that's offensive to oh, vegans. No. <laughs> like, uh, no, okay. So how do we have respect for the animals and respect for the language? The English language is such an amazing way to communicate. I mean, I have heard from linguists that we have words and expressions that can explain things in, in such exquisite detail in a way that few other languages can. So where do we put all that? It is such a fascinating thing, and and, it, and I love English. I really love English as a language because it's so complex. And, yeah, the solution is to call your partner agave. That's obviously <laughs> just the solution. <laughs> or majority. Yeah, agave nectar. So... So, you know, that kind of political correctness drives me crazy because because that's empty. It's just void of any meaning whatsoever. Uh, so it is a matter of recognizing that language is not merely a means of communication. It represents and it reinforces our own personal attitudes, our own personal mores, the attitudes of our culture. It gives social credit to certain thoughts. Uh, it could mask or justify you know, ethical red flags. So it it is really meaningful and we can make conscious choices about how we use that language. But that doesn't mean that, that we, I don't believe that we need to censor ourselves, but I do believe that we need to respect and reflect the truth. That's different than political correctness. So, so something like honey, I mean, that's silly. (laughs) that's just that's just silly because of course bees are making this substance for their own food 
and we've called it honey. So they make they make it anyway, and it is sweet. I mean, so to deny that is just about being political, you know, politically correct. And I don't necessarily condone that. But if I say something like, you know, such an obvious one, like uh, like kill two birds. Um, with one stone, or I say something like that person's such an animal, or I say that person's a pig. That's different because I am then at that moment using a really pejorative term in the case of something like calling someone a pig or a rat that that really does uh, demean animals, and that has direct consequences. Calling someone honey does not, does not, in my opinion, but calling someone a pig does, because not only are you using an animal term to put down a human being, you're also putting down the animals and you're reinforcing this idea that animals, that other animals are, are lesser than humans. So it's really a matter of ref- making sure that our language reflects the truth of our values and conveys those values rather than being worried that you're saying something like, you know, that's not quote unquote vegan. I don't believe that there's this thing called vegan as an ethic. There's something called compassion as an ethic and veganism is the way to get there. But I think too often vegans who get hypersensitive about this think that we have to live according to this thing called veganism. And my opinion is that we live according to a thing called compassion. What about historical words? I can remember the very day I I was a teenager when I learned that Teamsters, as in Teamsters Union, came from the time when people drove animals, they, they teams of horses, and yet it's still the name of the union that represents the truck drivers. Mm. Do we want them to change the name? Yeah, those are good questions. I, I think it's lost its meaning. I, I don't think people think about the animals who were used to drive uh, people, you know, when you hear about conversations like that around something like redskins that, you know, which is, you know, in my opinion, that's pretty, that's pretty racist. Uh, I think that has more weight. And I think every word is going to have its own conversation. Teamsters, that's a good question. I don't think it necessarily has the weight that something like redskins has. And if no one's being offended because the, because it's lost, we've lost our memory of it then I don't necessarily think we need to change it. And there are a lot of words that that really do have to have a history of exploitation. But again, the meanings change over time and the original meaning loses its weight. And I think we just have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I think that's interesting. You know, when you were talking about, it's almost like this idea of words versus phrases or language or even intent. When you gave that example of um, like, she's such a pig. If someone actually stopped themselves, even from a vegan perspective, to say, I sh- should say that differently, it might also actually stop them from saying something really, like whatever they really meant by that in the first place toward that person. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, it's it's a great way to like kind of think about how we view animals, but also what we're just doing with language in general to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just it, it enable it forces us to be more expressive and more specific about what we're trying to mm-hmm. say. So, for instance, when instead of saying something, and again, this isn't this isn't a directive, this isn't a dictate, this isn't a dogma. This is um this is my I'm more comfortable saying something that only that doesn't offend people or other animals, but that is actually more descriptive. So I'll say someone's a glutton, and there is a real meaning for that. Like we have this, we we can picture what that means, and it's still very powerful, and it says what it means, and we're we're being more descriptive. So I think that's right. It forces us to kind of be more thoughtful and mindful about what it is we're really trying to say. 
I admire pigs so much that if somebody <laughs> called me a pig, I would say, thank you. I don't really live up to it, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, I think that's exactly the kind of interaction that we can have with people. And that's what I love because, because language is living and language is alive all the time and and language exists because we use it so when you're saying something like should we keep using teamsters now that's a pretty entrenched word because it's the name of a of a group of a union Uh, but there are words that will fall out of favor because we stop using them and so and and meanings of words and words will gain more favor by using them so i do that also when i'm talking to people and they say something like i was talking to a friend we were taking a walk she's a new friend and she was she said something i think she said someone was a pig and i said i said i you know we're in this very friendly conversation and i said don't even give them that i I said don't be i said don't insult um pigs by by calling that person a pig (laughs) and she totally she goes you're absolutely right you're absolutely right right so there we we teach people how to talk and we can we can do that by even saying something like i love pigs pigs are great thanks i consider that a compliment that does make someone go what like i've never heard anybody say that before and it forces someone to think about it differently so tell us some fun examples, Colleen, because I know there are words with animal origins that, that aren't pejorative and that just might be interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I did a series on color, and there are so many words for colors. I did It's a two-parter because I did one that's on colors that we get from crushing animals that so that that do have to do with the fact that we've hurt them or crushed them. And so we're not going to talk about those, but there is an episode people can listen to on those. But then there's all these words that we have for colors that just reflect the beauty or the color of a particular animal that inspired us to create a word to describe the color. So for instance, taupe, a lot of people don't know taupe comes from the word telpa, which means mole, the the mammal, the mole, because of the color of that mammal's fur. You have um, teal, the color teal, T-E-A-L, because of the teal dock, because of the gorgeous, gorgeous greenish blue color they have on, sometimes on their wings, sometimes on their heads. You have the word um, fawn, inspired by the color of a young deer. You have the word vermilion, even which is inspired by a red worm, vermilion meaning um, coming from the word that means uh, worm. So you've got all these wonderful words that we use all the time that we have no idea came from having been inspired by animals. I just did also, I just released it last week, was the episode on body parts, on our anatomy that come from animals. So the word cornea in our eye comes from a word that comes from, uh, that means horn. And because cornea, though you'd think it was very soft, it's actually a very hard substance. And that comes from the word that means horn. I've talked about muscle, which comes from the word that means mouse, because an anatomist saw a little mouse moving in our under our skin that resembled a mouse moving under a blanket. You have the word hippocampus in our brain, because it comes from the word that means horse, named after hippocampus, which is a Greek mythological character that was part horse and an anatomist saw kind of the the head of a horse in this shape of uh, this part of our brain. So there's all, and then there's, you know, then there's really colloquial ones like cowlick and dewlap and crow's feet and hair lip and goatee and ponytail. I mean, all of these expressions we use, all these words that we use um, for just more colloquial terms. And that's what's so much fun is you, when you start, like you're saying, JL, when you start thinking about this, it's so wonderful to be mindful about your language because then you just start thinking about the etymology of the words you're using and like you looked that up. 
That's so cool. And that's what happens. You start, it's really annoying to have a conversation with me because people will be talking and I'll be like, that's an animology. You just said an animology. They're like, what? I'm just trying to finish my sentence. I'm like, no, no, that's from goat. And they're like, okay. But it's, it's absolutely fascinating once you start thinking about it. It really is. So you said that this is um, part of a bigger project. So what do you have planned for animology? Where do you see this going? I really want this to be a book. I really see this being a book and, and, you know, it's really, it's a tough one because it's, it's so vast, this topic that it's about these kind of playful aspects, which is, you know, how, oh, how interesting these words have animal origins, which is more than just novelty. I mean, it's that we are so connected that we have these origins from animals, but it's also, there's so much to say about, you know, I talked to Paul Shapiro, for instance, on the podcast. I mean, there's so much to say about euphemisms that the meat, dairy, and egg industries use, or the vivisection industries use, or the fur industries. I mean, there's all these euphemisms that we use uh, around language and our use of animals that also mask what we're actually doing to them. Uh, I talked to Michelle Simon about the dairy industry trying to uh, stop plant milk industry, you know, companies from using the word milk. I mean, so there's so many more implications than just, oh, isn't it fun that there's animals in our origins of these words that figuring out how that plays out in a book is just that that's really all it is it's just how that would what the form would look like but i'm definitely working on that and um and then yeah just really talking about it more talking to you know my friends like you and to the audience and doing more more talks on on this topic because i think it's i think it's really important and i think it's really interesting but i think it's really important well, you're reminding me of a young woman. Well, I guess she's young enough. We still call her a girl, uh, Genesis Butler, 10 years old. She was on our show a year or so ago. She was featured in the documentary Vegan Everyday Stories. And um, Genesis has now done uh, a TEDx talk, and she's hoping to get on the, the TED page and mm. so if people want to look her up, and I'll put this information on the uh, Main Street Vegan show notes along with information about Colleen and, and JL, but Genesis loved chicken nuggets as a little tiny kid, and she said to her mom, well, where do we get chicken nuggets? And her mom said, the grocery store. And she's like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where does the grocery store get him? Because the word was the same as, you know, an animal. And when the mother confirmed it was indeed an animal, she was like, we eat animals. Well, Mm -hmm. I'm not eating animals anymore. (laughs) And so when we're clear, Mm -hmm. even small children can get it. And when we mask it with what you talked about, all these euphemisms, I think people can just go through life forgetting the obvious. Absolutely. And of course, the industries rely on that. And then it becomes part of our vernacular. And we don't even realize what we're saying. And this is why I have, you know, repeated this so many times when talking to other animal advocates and to vegans, is that the words we use really make a difference in terms of how we characterize the foods that we're eating which, uh, you know, which in many ways can be really disparaging. So for instance, I mean, I have an episode called uh, Vegetarians Eat Meat, Vegans Eat Meat. And it's about the history and the future of the word meat. And one, you know, the original, the original meaning, and again, it's changed, it's become more narrow, but the original meaning of the word meat was all food. It was just, it meant solid food. And so we still say coconut meat today or the meat of a nut. 
But what happens, we have all these vegan meats and they're wonderful. And we unfortunately wind up and we see it, journalists using it. And this is a real opportunity for activism is writing to journalists and encouraging them to not use words like fake and faux and mock and substitute and alternative. I mean, words that just disparage what are just plants. And so there's a lot to say around the words that we even use. And same thing with, you know, with with chicken. I mean, I talk a lot about there's an episode called Animal Characteristics in Old English Words, because when you look, it's so fascinating. We have all of these words. People can obviously listen to the episode. Of course, it talks about the history of English and when French influenced English. So what happened was when French was bringing all these words into English, we did start using words like like pork instead of pig. Pig was an old, old English word. Pork is a French word. We started using beef, which is a French word instead of uh, instead of steer or bull or cow. Uh, so all of these words influence the English language. But when you look at the origins of the old English words for the living animals, all of them, every single one of them reflects a characteristic uh, or behavior of that animal. So it's really like a celebration of the living animal themselves, which is fascinating. But of course, the French derived words, the French inspired words like beef, like poultry, like um, like pork, have only, the only meaning means dead, dead animal. And so we've taken the life literally out of the animal and we've literally taken the life out of the word. So being mindful about our language and knowing that when we can, whatever we say conveys a value, it really just changes the way you operate in this world. It changes changes the way you communicate. It's amazing. It's true. I am. I tell you all the time. You're very quotable, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) I teach. I teach a lot of culinary classes, and I always will say, and I'm going to quote my friend Colleen Patrick Boudreau when people say, "Are we going to be doing fake meats in this class?" And I always say, "I don't eat anything fake. I eat plants, Mm -hmm. and we're going to have vegan meat. Yes, that's what we're going to have." And so, so I've learned a lot about taking a very positive approach too. So I don't make them feel bad, but I just simply say, I don't eat fake food. I eat plant food. So help me with a practical one. As, as I work very hard to get my dog all the way to vegan, and he has been a tough case, I'm told that many dogs who are picky eaters love what they call, and most people call, mock duck that you can get at uh, some Chinese restaurants. And we have a Chinese frozen food store here in New York City, Ma Wa, down in Chinatown. And so when I go in and I say I want mock duck, they know just what I mean. So what do I do with that? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be some situations where we do have to customize it a bit because they know, I mean, because that was really, I mean, mock duck really comes from Chinese Buddhism. I mean, so like they've been saying that for hundreds of years for a long time. So they know what you mean when you say mock duck. We can also just train people to understand that there's other ways to say it. So we could say, do you have vegan duck, the mock duck, so that they're hearing another association with it. Um, You know, that's a specific example around mock duck in a Chinese grocery store. But we can also, you know, just more broadly say things like plant-based duck, plant-based meats, plant-based chicken, plant chicken, vegan chicken, grain-based chicken, you know, just using different variations of it so that becomes just very comfortable for us to say and so that people also also hear just other variations of it. But in that case, it's kind of a little devoid of meaning in that very specific situation because they're so used to just mock duck, just meaning that it doesn't come from the flesh of an animal. 
And that's another thing. And I talk about in that episode, vegetarians eat meat, that word, that word flesh, um, which was what, which is the word that was used to convey dead animal that was consumed by humans because the word meat meant all food. So there had to be a way to talk about the flesh of that animal and it was flesh. And in order to distinguish between the the living cow and the dead one, they would say cow flesh, they would say swine flesh, they would say chicken flesh, poultry flesh. And that's a, constru- a construct that's also in German, which is, of course, what English is based on. So we can say those things as well. And that's not to be provocative or offensive. It's meant to just reflect, again, the truth. And that's what I'm asking for, is that we just reflect the truth of our values and the truth of what we're saying. Then I need to get your take on a phrase that that you use. And there's actually an article in today's Huffington Post about this very thing. And that is plant-based. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that one? Yeah, you know, I you read the introduction and it said plant-based. Uh, it said something about plant-based, which is actually, I didn't write that actually. But I but I kept it because, because I actually, when I talk about food, I feel very comfortable talking about plant-based food. It's it's funny to me, the word vegan is interchangeable, right? Because we call ourselves vegan as a way to say that we're people who, from an ethical place, don't consume or wear or, you know, in any way exploit animals. And yet we talk about food as being vegan, right? Because that's our way of saying, well, it's plant only, correct? It doesn't have any animal products in it. So we use it interchangeably, but still sometimes I feel strange calling like a banana vegan because it's just a plant like and i'm putting this like weight on this this ethic on this banana i think about it that way sometimes and so i do like calling like a a plate that i'm eating or a meal that i'm eating a plant-based meal or plant-based eating but i am very uh, much a proponent of the word vegan to talk about what it means to live according to our values of compassion and, and kindness so so, you know, people want to find a way to, you know, people want to find a very short, succinct, terse way to kind of convey who they are. And I understand some people are saying plant-based as a way to distinguish themselves from from vegan. And if that's what they need to do, I get it. But I, I really do think, you know, again, that's them reflecting their truth. But for me, you know, I, I don't shy away from it. And I would just caution anyone, any vegan who thinks they have to shy away from the word vegan to really look at, is it the word, is it the word you need to change or is it the perception of what that means that needs to change? And can you be part of changing the perception rather than just scrapping the word? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, just in language in general and how I think there are people are trying to separate themselves, like to say, oh, I'm not that I'm plant based, Mm -hmm. you know, like what, like what you're saying, like it's a noun and it's a, you know, it's a descriptor of a person and an ethic and it's a description of an actual food, but so it's plant based. And and so I think that's an Mm -hmm. interesting question for us, like if we're talking to people to also see how we can might push that plant based to shoes (laughs) as well as food. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Fascinating. So. Colleen, what else are you into these days? I know we've spent our time, most of it together, talking about language, which is absolutely fascinating, and everybody needs to listen to animology. But taking us over to the food for thought realm, what else is going on in your fascinating vegan Hmm. life? Oh, thank you for asking. You know, I'm really right now focused on, I'm having another conference in August in Oakland called Compassion in Action. And it's about 
guiding people to be able to communicate their values and act upon those values in effective ways, whether we're talking about personally or professionally or politically. And I'm I'm very involved in local politics. We actually just started a PAC here in Oakland for other people and myself, a political action committee, to be able to raise funds to help elect legislators who are animal friendly, to help them uh, uh, craft animal friendly legislation, to really be their um, the voice for animals in here in the uh, the Bay Area. So, um, so I'm really involved in really empowering people to again find their voice and be able to use that voice in a very powerful way. I mean, I tell the story. I, I just wrote a blog post yesterday on my website about how Oakland. Uh, really, you know, was instrumental in getting circus animals out of circuses and really instrumental in ringling closing. And I say instrumental because we were part of this, this, this journey that many people have been on for many years in protests and litigation against ringling and circuses. But really what ultimately made ringling close was they realized they were going to have to fight this ban, this bullhook ban that Oakland, um, passed after LA did and they were going to have to fight in local jurisdictions and it was too expensive for them to do that. And then the public tide was turning in terms of perception of, of animal circuses. That is the power of local politics is working with a city council who passed a ban who that, that, that law, whatever you pass could also be moved to a state or federal level, which in and of itself is also powerful. But in this case, it affected a private company. And so I really just want to help people understand how, powerful their voices are and how much they can do on a local level because it's important on a local level, but also because the ripple effects that happen um, are just beyond what we could even imagine. No one would have imagined when elephants were taken out after the bullhook ban, that felt like a victory. But less than a year later, they were closing because, of course, if you can't torture elephants, you can't train them. And so that's just powerful to me. And so I really am trying to really help people find their political animal, if you will. That's exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. And I think that's happening uh, all over the country. I it just went to the launch of, of something here in, in New York um, about um, Empire State Humane Voters. And mm-hmm. the, my favorite person there, and there were a lot of great speakers, but there was a gentleman from the Bronx who is some sort of committee man, and I don't really understand all the levels or exactly what he does, but he spoke, and and he was an older gentleman, and my assumption, again, these assumptions will really just jump up and, and bite you. I thought, what what a lovely gentleman, and he really cares about cats and dogs, and isn't that great? And I was talking to him later and said, I don't get to the Bronx very often, but my husband and I love to go up to City Island, which is this island off the coast of the Bronx. You would think you were in Cape Cod. And he said, oh, I don't really go to City Island now that I'm vegan. And it was so thrilling. I don't know his exact chronological age, but he certainly went vegan well after a lot of people would have said, well, you know, I I should have done that 30 years ago. I'm not going to do it now. He did it now. It is. We just don't we just underestimate the the influence we have uh, on everyone around us. We have an audience all the time around us, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a store clerk, whether it is our local politician. And if when we figure that out, 
we're just going to be unstoppable because that's exactly what happens. And what, what also happens working with individuals is they take that ethic to, like you said, every other part of their lives. And that includes something like local politicians, you know, your city council, your supervisors, what, what have you is not only are you affecting local policy that will help animals locally, not only could that policy then be translated to state or federal, et cetera, or to private industries, What's also happening is that you're shaping the compassion in that particular individual who has an ambition, who will take that ethic with them wherever they go. So, you know, don't underestimate your local city council member wanting to run for state Senate. Don't underestimate them wanting to run for federal Senate. Don't underestimate them wanting to run for president. So when you can shape that compassionate perspective in them here at the local level, or again, in any way that you're interacting with people that will go with them wherever they go. And that is the power of us using our voice and inspiring people to act according to their own ethics. Wow. Oh, (laughs) you've got the hair on my arm standing up on that one, Colleen. That is so exciting. So everybody, I can't believe that our time is up. We will put everybody's URLs on the show notes. You can find Colleen at ColleenPatrickGoudreau.com. She's on Instagram and YouTube as Joyful Vegan. You can find JL Fields at JL Goes Vegan. And next week, we are going to have a couple of wonderful women on the program. They are... Jenny Messina, wonderful dietitian, mm-hmm. and Patty Brightman, wonderful literary light of this world, who are two of the three authors of a new book called Even Vegans Die. Mm-hmm. And guess who wrote the foreword? Oh, oh. Dr. Michael Greger, who wrote <laughs> How Not to Die. Fascinating, isn't it? And genius. Yeah. <laughs> Please join us then. Have a wonderful week. Thanks to my two beautiful guests. God bless you all and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on unityonlineradio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music.
were once two monks who slept late and missed their morning prayers. The very strict abbot ordered the monks to do penance for their lack of discipline. They had to walk all day with peas in their shoes. One monk moaned with every step he took. The other just smiled with a secret satisfaction. Finally, the one monk in agony asked, Brother, how is it that you can stand a walk on these dry, hard peas? The happy monk replied, I boiled my peas. We all have difficulties that seem to cause us great pain as we walk through life. But there is a way to deal with life's challenges. Changing your thoughts and actions can change the world around you. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.